This is a podcast from Rover. Rex Today with NetSpeed. Connecting the country and now with mobile phones. G'day everyone, how are we doing? This is Rex Today. I'm Dominic George. We're here until 12.30. Thanks to the team at NetSpeed. Coming up in just a moment, we talk aquaculture with Rebecca Barclay, a multi-million dollar project underway. We'll find out the details. We're also going to be looking at the Inspiring Food and Futures in Schools program with Trevor McIntyre. And we go to Robert Peacock from Orari Gorge Station about the low-input progeny test. The results have been collated. We will find out the details with Robert Peacock. That's all coming up between now and 12.30. But first up today, we're dipping our toes into a, a sort of a different kind of farming story on the program today. There's a pilot project for farming a native brown kelp, which is off to a very exciting start in what could become a new ocean farming sector for the aquaculture industry. Envirostrat is growing seaweed plants in a custom-built nursery in Tauranga, and they're planting them off Coromandel's Ponui Island in a $5 million three-year pilot project. Greenwave project lead Rebecca Barkley joins us now to tell us all about about it, Rebecca. Nice to have you on the show. How are you? I'm great, thank you, and thanks so much for having me. No worries. Tell us about the project. Very interesting stuff. The first time in New Zealand that brown kelp has been grown in a hatchery and put out onto a farm. Correct, yeah. So Greenway's an innovative three-year regenerative ocean farming pilot, um, hopefully paving the way for a sustainable seaweed aquaculture industry in New Zealand. Well, the brown kelp has never been harvested from the wild. How do you actually harvest it? What's the process here? So you use scuba and um, we go out and collect reproductive tissue from wild plants. And we we choose plants located near the farms where we're going to outplant them. So we go out on scuba, take um, parts of a plant, only small parts of the plant. We take that tissue back to a hatchery We clean it up and we go through a process to induce the um, reproductive tissue to release their spores. Once that tissue has been stressed, it, you know, kind of goes, oh, I need to reproduce now. So it releases spores. That spore solution is then put into a, um, a tank of water with some spools with twine wrapped around it. The floating spores settle out onto the twine, and then they grow. Once they're at about two to four millimetres, then we take those um, spools and then we take them from the hatchery out onto the farm and then we outplant them onto the farm. This is something that I've been hearing about a little bit more in the last sort of maybe two to three years is the importance of this sort of um, aquaculture and it's particularly in relation to agriculture on the land. There's a, there's a real link there and it's something that we're hearing more and more of, uh, as I say, in, in, in more recent times. Absolutely, yeah. So we chose Eclonia radiata um, most importantly because there is an existing known market demand of the product mm. in New Zealand. Um, yeah, so from the outset of this project, we were acutely aware that if we want to catalyse a viable new primary sector, there has to be a market demand. And in our case, the demand was mostly um, from products used in the agri-sector, such as biostimulants. Part of our project is looking at um, what are the impacts of using that biostimulant on our, our farming soil. So one of the many work streams within our project Project will be um, soil sampling of the agri-sea products. 
Um, and then we'll be looking at, you know, what biodiversity impacts are there? Does the soil retain more water? Does the plants grow better? by using these biostimulants. Yeah, and um, I think, you know, indications are that they certainly do to a degree anyway. Um, what's so important about this specific type of seaweed that you're talking about? Is there something, um, you know, special about that? Yeah, well, um, there is a market demand. Um, that was one of the, the most important aspects of this pilot. You know, you don't focus on a seaweed if, there, if no one's already using it. Mm. So... The other aspects of the clonia is that it, it is very tolerant to the warmer waters up here in the North Island. Right. Um, and it's locally native within the Hauraki Gulf. So we source the plants from within a, a very um, small range of our existing farms. So, Rebecca, what are the goals of the project? Yeah, there are three main um, areas of focus with the pilot. Um, Most importantly, we want to optimise production of the supply chain. And that means understanding how best to grow seaweed. What are the environmental and ocean conditions which influence its growth? Um, How to optimise hatchery production? You know, what different types of rope and farming layouts are needed? And ultimately, we're seeking to maximise the revenue opportunities for the future seaweed farmers that we work with. Um, We're also developing a business model that will enable sustainable growth in the future. And that means we want to do as much as we can to commercially de-risk farming. Um, This will include guaranteed access to hatchery product, training and workforce development, assistance with compliance, etc. It's a bit of a minefield out there right now, Mm. um, you know, with that whole legal framework. But MPI have been incredible um, in enabling us to get to where we're at. Um, And it'll also include ensuring a good price for the seaweed being farmed by moving up that value chain. Um, The final area we're focusing on relates to the impact of seaweed farming. Um, In particular, we want to understand and measure the environmental impacts of seaweed, which will include climate change mitigation, water quality improvement and biodiversity benefits. Rebecca Barclay, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rex Today. With NetSpeed. Internet till the cows come home. Well, more than 600 students from Christchurch in Auckland have been introduced to the agriculture sector in two months as part of the Inspiring Food and Futures in Schools program. Now, the Tertiary Education Commission, New Zealand Young Farmers, GoHort and MPI all teamed up to help inspire the next generation. NZ Young Farmers Special Project uh, Manager Trevor McIntyre joins us now to tell us a bit more about it. Trevor, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Dom. Excellent. Tell us a bit more about this uh, program. It ran through, what, September and November, didn't it? Yes, it did. Um, it started a, a while ago, Dom, really, because um, New Zealand young farmers, um, through a, a wonderful legacy of Donald Pearson, um, got left a dairy farm just on the outskirts of Auckland at Whitford. Mm-hmm. And um, one of his requests when he left the property to us was that we uh, used it for educational purposes. Um, so we started to explore ways that we could do that, and uh, we came across the Inspiring the Future program with uh, MPI and TEC, and decided that we would give it a go and run it um, in situ on the farm rather than typically where they run in classrooms. Yes, and um, I know that uh, the uh, the Auckland students visited there. What was their response like getting uh, first-hand on-farm experience? Oh, look, it was it was wonderful, Dom. Look, I, 
you know, you always wonder when you, you organise programs like these, and I suppose I thought that if we could get half the students that came out on the trip um, inspired or excited about the opportunity, but um, some of the, the hands-up surveying we did at the end of the events, we were getting 80 to 90% of the students that were saying that it was an outstanding experience or at least a very, very good experience. And these are students who wouldn't normally be introduced to the uh, agriculture sector, right? It's true. Um, we always ask them when they arrived um, how many of them had been on farms before. There was a small number, um, but not a lot, no. Now, the feedback. Um, so, obviously, the show of hands was uh, encouraging, but, uh, you know, in terms of what you were told and things like that, aspects that they enjoyed, what sort of parts of it, uh, you know, were appealing to, to some of these kids? Well, I think the range of activities we had, Dom, and, um, you know, just a, a little bit of feedback. Um, we we mowed a, a, an amount of green grass to show them how much a cow ate in a day, and that blew most of them away. Right, yeah. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, it's quite a... In fact, it even impressed me because it's quite <laughs> a sizable pile of grass. Um, the opportunity they had to sit down and talk to young people who worked in the sector and to hear their stories about how they got there, why they got there, um, what they were doing, they found that really um, interesting. And um, also the practical activities. We had the New Zealand arborists there showing them tree climbing. We had... Uh, Hort NZ there with uh, make, letting them make up small packs of vegetable seeds to take home and then we had an activity where they uh, were introduced to tractors and post drivers and car feeders and fertiliser spreaders and all those sorts of things and they found that really interesting as well. Now these were year nine students right? Yes, they were dog. Yeah, yeah. So good age, um, you know, to be able to have a look at it and maybe pique the interest of uh, one or two going forward in terms of the ag sector because it is one of these things, particularly when you're from an urban environment, where it's not really something that you'd even really consider as a potential option. No, that's right. And, um, and that's our challenge as a sector as well. I mean, you know, we can excite these young people around the sector, but we just need to make sure that, you know, work now with uh, those schools in particular, but any students who we excite about the sector is, is what are the next steps um, and, and to, to sort of create that, that pathway, if you like, rather than just one-off exciters. One of the interesting things that I learned about this was uh, in terms of Papakura High School, more kids came to school on those days than any other day of the year, which is um, quite extraordinary. Yes, it was one of the one of the one-liners that uh, one of the staff there related to me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think too probably there's a little bit of it and one of the other staff related that the students hadn't had much opportunity to get outside the school to yeah. do learning activities so much over the last couple of years. So the opportunity to travel on a bus out to a farm was uh, was exciting to them. And it is, as you sort of alluded to at the start there though, this is um, the first time it's kind of been done like this, this partnership with um, tertiary education and MPI? Yeah, well, it, 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 um, the Inspiring the Future program has been around for a wee while, um, but but typically it's uh, it's an inside, um, in-the-classroom sort of activity, and yeah. we decided that we would try and, and marry it up with um, being out on the, out on the job, if you like. Um, and the one we did in Christchurch was out on a farm, and um, you know the students got to see sheep and lambs in the yards, and farmer run his dog, and put up a you know a prattly yard, and that sort of thing. So they actually got the practical application as well as sitting down then with the young people and um, talking to them about their jobs and things. So just it just gave it a breadth that um, perhaps it didn't normally have. Yeah, and the important thing is as well is if you can inspire a couple of people even to go into the ag sector, my God, it's certainly crying out for workers. There's just no two ways about it. Well, that's the point we made, Don, with them very, very clearly that 
um, you know, th- there's work everywhere in the sector at the moment, and um, you know, there's good paying jobs and reliable jobs there. So when they start uh, looking up and looking out for uh, for a job and for a pathway, then to give the primary sector, you know, really careful consideration. And then the other point to raise in relation to that, Trevor, is the fact that um, I guess there's a bit of an onus now, or how do you go about keeping these students engaged from your sort of your year sevens, eights, nines right through? Yeah, it is, Dom, and then, you know, it's, I don't know my background, but I've, I've been a farmer, I've been a school principal, I've been involved in the Ministry of Education with their secondary tertiary pathway stuff. It's a real passion of mine, mm. um, and... I think you know there's there's a lot of work we need to do to provide that that spark if you like at primary school level, but then have a coordinated approach to the activities that we can have by contextualised curriculum, farm visits, um, inspiring the future events, etc. But we've got a, as a sector we've got a very clear uh, delineated plan about how we excite these young people and then we pathway them into the sector because these young people won't automatically drop in our, in our back doorsteps in the sector if we don't have a you know, a, a really good uh, plan for them. Yeah, so it's, it's got to be proactive. It, it's got to be proactive and it's longitudinal too. Like It's not just waiting to year 13 and then all oh, let's dive into the year 13 students and see if we can and pluck students out into our respective sectors because there won't be enough there. Yeah, and the school training around those ag courses, particularly at that uh, higher sort of, you know, years sort of 11, 12, 13, the courses are becoming a lot more enticing, I think, for people as well. And uh, it's taken a lot more seriously than perhaps it was maybe, I don't know, five, ten years ago. Yeah, definitely is dominant. And I think, too, there's more more of the teachers out there now that are considering the context. And this is an example, Papakura High School, who we work with in Auckland, um, they took their Year 12 geography students down to uh, Southland on a dairy farming field trip. Right. You know, it's just you know, it was you know, just wonderful, really. And out of that, there are three or four students who connected with us at the farm to want to then start to follow up around what dairy farming was about. So, mm. you know, there was a geography teacher using the dairy and context in their subject to. Um, excite kids and I think that's fantastic well it bodes well Trevor McIntyre great to have you on the show thanks yes, thanks Tom Rex today with NetSpeed connecting the country and now with mobile phones all right, welcome back into the show. Well, the country's low-input sheep were on show last week at Orari Gorge Station with farmers from all over the country tuning in to hear more about the low-input progeny test. Now, this is a three-year program funded by Beef and Lamb New Zealand and MPI. It's pretty much winding up. All the results uh, were on show. Orari Gorge Station owner Robert Peacock joins us now. Robert, good to talk. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Excellent. How'd the field day go? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a busy time of year for farmers. Um, there's always a debate when is a good time to hold a field day, but yeah, we had quite a good turnout. Um, had about 65 people there, and there's, I think there's another 25 people watching online as well. So what's the general science behind this then, Robert? It, it's a, focusing mainly on the genetics. So as you mentioned, uh, there was plenty of rams. 17 rams were used each year from a variety of breeds all around the country, Stud, um, stud rams, and then uh, progeny were, were DNA'd at tailing uh, and then measured for pretty much everything. So weaning weights, growth rates, DAG scores, uh, individual worm counts from every lamb twice each year for, to measure worm resistance. Um, the ewe lambs were put through the methane chamber. They also went to Invermay to go through feed efficiency trials. Um, they were individually fleece weighed and 
um, scored for any any shedding or bare breaches or bare bellies. Because um, there was all sorts of breeds, everything from pure breeds like Romneys and Coopworths through to crossbreeds, Finns, Texels, um, even Wiltshires. Um, but they all had to be maternal because we're measuring maternal traits as well. Right, so really what it's highlighting here is the potential of genetics, isn't it? It is, yes. And there was big differences between sire lines. You sort of, um, had about 30, 20 or 30 male progeny from each sire. So you could you could compare sire lines. And, yeah, there was big differences between sires. But it's, it's important to note there was no one sire that was good at everything. Right. So when you're measuring that number of traits, it's, it's very hard. To even just be average at everything is pretty hard. Um, so to be sort of at the top of everything is nigh on impossible. But, um, but the sooner we, the more stud breeders can record these traits, then the further the whole industry can go forwards across all the traits. Yeah, and then refine it as it goes on once you've got yeah. more data. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, but it must feel good, though, to finally sort of, you know, having wound up the trial. So I guess, you know, where, where, where to next? Yeah. Well, I mean, it hasn't completely finished. The original funding has finished, but we've still got a, a crop of lambs born this year, so they still need measuring for everything through this coming summer and autumn. Mm-hmm. And then the ewe lambs born last year and the ewe lambs born this year they will still be measured for their maternal traits for their first lambing. And, um, and what this trial has done to me is it's just really enforced that belief that genetics can be the answer um, to a lot of these problems. They're, they're not the only answer, but they are a big part of the, the toolbox. Um, we've still got to be careful with, with drenches, with grazing management and, and mixing stock species. Because, I mean, the, the main, there's a couple of main reasons for starting this trial. One is, is just the, the obvious fact that drenches are failing. Um, we're getting up to sort of 60% of farms reported to have drench resistance to, to triple combination drenches in the North Island. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit lower in the South Island, but, it, but it's heading this way as well. Um, another reason is labour. Yeah, it's one thing trying to get shepherds that want to go mustering on the hill and doing all the fun stuff but getting them to drench is hard enough and then spend a week dagging lambs is um is pretty hard work Mm. um no one wants to do that and the other thing is obviously the markets wanting less chemical used on farm um obviously no residues you still follow the label but even just if it's followed the label and they just want less chemicals used and then the the other part of wanting to do it was was from the genetic side was like WormFAC, which is the the method used to measure worm resistance in sheep, has been around for 30 years now. And five years ago, when we started this, um, there was only about 30 breeders recording for worm resistance. Um, and we needed sort of more of a push on that because uh, for the breeders that are already recording it and they... They want to buy rams from other sires, other studs that are also recording it. They're really limited where they can go, mm. um, especially when those 30 breeders are then split into um, different breeds. Each breed might only have four or five um, stud breeders measuring similar traits. And so if you're going to use a sire from a stud that's not measuring it, it's a real gamble whether he's going to handle your conditions or not. Yeah. And, 
And so we were wanting to push that message across to other stud breeders. And that's been one of the big successes of the trial is um, stud breeders measuring worm feck, um, DAG scoring, things like that have pretty much tripled. Well, that's all very, very interesting stuff. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot more work is uh, to go on in this space and will do uh, over the next few years. That is for sure. Uh, Robert Peacock, Arari Gorge Station owner, really do appreciate your time and uh, and your knowledge in terms of filling us in on this stuff. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. And I, I think it's just great to try and get the message out there as much as we can. Well, some good news for open country dairy suppliers. They'll receive $9.37 a kilogram of milk solids for milk supply between June and September this year. That's two cents above last season's average price, a record payout by open country. And the country's second largest milk processor is also on the hunt for more farm suppliers in Waikato. And that's where we will be for the next few days at Field Days at Mystery Creek in Waikato. As always, thanks to NetSpeed, netspeed.net.nz. Mark and Leah next. Rex today. With NetSpeed. Internet till the cows come home.